Well, here we are once again, Peter, on V'ger Please, a painful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. How you doing? This is like a bit of a double header for us. I'm kind of excited. We're busy bodies over here. Two episodes in the can in one week. You know, we're trying to avoid any uh, pitfalls. You know, we had that gap in service. You know, we don't we don't want the hatred to to taper off. We need to remain strong and and firm week to week. So we don't leave anyone hanging. So we're building a little back catalog here and, and doing some weekend podcasting, which means. I am like three or four shots of vodka in right now. And I'm feeling good about life, Peter. I just woke up from a nap. We went canoeing today and man, that sun takes it out of you. You know, I expected you to like be mashing me in a certain state of, of inebriation, given that I assumed you'd be cabrewing. And I was sad to hear that you got, you got busted before you could even start. Yeah, man. Park Rangers aren't screwing around this year. So my uh, binge drinking is waiting until after we wrap this up and I go out to the club and get toe up. Well, you know, I won't keep you. And then fortunately, though, I think for our sanity, we got to watch an episode uh, that did not uh, induce feelings of the need to binge drink all on its own to forget it. We watched an unqualified quality episode of Star Trek, maybe not like top tier material but something i at least i i walked away from going that was all right that was that was pretty good which in in voyager speak might as well be the highest praise possible absolutely let's get right into it season two episode 10 cold fire the title i think is probably the worst part of this entire episode and we actually also start with a recap and the recap to me is where the interesting part of the episode begins because the first few words are incredibly interesting to me. So we get a recap where Majel Barrett is telling us about the pilot of the show we're watching, just in case somehow you didn't see it or, or, or weren't aware of it. I mean, you know, 21.3 million people watched it. So which at this point, this episode had 6 million people watching. So chances are they've probably seen the pilot, but just in case we get it summarized. But the first few words are 10 months ago, this thing happened and Voyager got stuck in the Delta Quadrant. 10 months ago. You know how we've had this headcanon that being in Starfleet is akin to signing up for some sort of Lovecraftian horror and having to deal with constant space hazards for the entirety of your all too brief existence and people who get promoted are simply the ones that survive. Yeah. Well, let's let's look at this. Let's let's think about this. In this 10 months, it's a lot of shit. They've crammed a lot of misadventures into under a year. Like every day of work essentially has had a very high percentage chance of being some bullshit. If you discount the the pilot and you look at each episode as a a hazard uh experience there's been 23 within that 10 weeks or 10 months 23 now let's let's assume that we don't count uh, uh projections and we don't count uh heroes and demons uh since those are like holodeck hazard episodes and Let's assume we don't count ex post facto since that was really only a hazard to Tom Paris's, you know, ability to not have an aneurysm for messing around with ugly aliens. 
Uh, we're, we're counting that's post fact. Well, candy corn tragedy should be discounted too, since nobody retained any knowledge of it. It still happened. They just don't remember it. So depending on if you choose to, to, to count time and again, the candy corn tragedy, uh, that's 20 endangering of the ship, mortal peril, uh, moments in 40 weeks. So that's, that's two one every other week. Yeah, that's that's one a pay period for these people. <laughs> Holy fucking shit. Are you serious with this? Oh, my God. So I'm I'm saying head cannon 100 percent stone cold lock in confirmed. Space is a is a Cthulhu esque nightmare filled with horrors of the darkness that will destroy you. And evidently, you're going to have at least one mortal danger situation, a pay period. Let me, let's further flesh this out, because uh, the Skeevian episode, right? The Pleasure Planet? Right. They're there for like two weeks screwing around, aren't they? Well, I think that they had the opportunity to stay that long, but I I don't think they spend quite that level of time. I'll have to go back and read my notes, but I got the impression that they were there multiple days. So that actually makes the encounter ratio for bullshit, I think, a little higher if you figure that that was well over at least a week, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, I mean... A lot of these episodes, they wrap basically in a relatively short amount of time. That, I think, is the only one that comes to memory of being something that took place over a long period of time. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, just every two weeks, at a minimum, these guys are facing some kind of Delta Quadrant-specific space hazard. Now, maybe the Delta Quadrant is just the, the fucking garbage fire, white trash... Uh, you know, a mobile home park of the galaxy, and it's just you're you're dodging, you know, crazed rednecks with knives on a on meth everywhere, and it's just fucking terrible there. And if you're in the Alpha Quadrant doing normal Federation stuff, it's not as dangerous. And they're just in the lawless part of space, and not as exciting. Uh, or per week, and and it, it is or. Space is a a horror movie waiting to happen, and you know, event eventually you have to expect some sort of alien germ is going to get into Voyager and turn everyone's you know organs inside out, and they all die hideously, except for the Doctor who stands by and just sits there and waits for Oblivion to claim him. So the rest of the rest of the uh, the the recap is fake news though, because it says that. When the caretaker died, their their hope of going home died with him. That's bullshit. That is fake news. It's Janeway that caused them to not be able to go home because she blew the fucking place up. Janeway has is is solely responsible for that. The caretaker dying was not important to their capacity to get home. So we've been hit with space nightmare timeline plus Janeway fake news, and the episode hasn't even started yet. The entire recap really stood out as a sore thumb. And like you said, like who's watching this show that does not implicitly know what this is? Uh, Majel Barrett doing the intro on this too. I'll point out she's not really doing it like computer voicey. It's more of a casual narration. And I guess 
she's really as close as Star Trek's ever come to having a narrator. So I thought it was interesting that they had her, you know, it's not really Troy's mom, Loxana Troy. It's not the computer. It's just her voice giving the overview on this. And to the, the Troy point, if you're like me and you're ever like, you know, the counselor seems like a silly position, especially to have as a bridge officer, I think Voyager's catastrophe after catastrophe really locks in the point, the importance of the role of a counselor in the 24th century and them not having one because of their job profile for this maquis uh, drug bust gone wrong. <laughs> I think before you start appointing new uh, new executive officers, new chief engineers, a new doctor, you should say, all right, well, who here has the best trauma counseling background? Because we're going to go through uh, some shit on a rapid fire basis. And we need like how. Yeah. How is the entire crew not completely shell shocked at this point already? It goes to show that a you're right. Mental health in space in the 24th century clearly has to be at a premium given what they're facing. And uh, and B, I guess maybe the show's like the 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 idea of the elite making it into Starfleet, and so they're just not shook. But then again, neither are their Maquis randos or any of them. So it just got to be hard to be in the twenty fourth century, man. You just gotta you gotta be a hard motherfucker. I think they just got really good medication. They got super Prozac and they are good to go. It's, we don't see that scene every day where everyone's dosing on their high grade psychotropic medication so they can get through another agonizing day in in the Scythian nightmare that is their existence of trudging through the darkness of the void. Uh, but it's there. It's there spiritually, and now we know that. Must be. So, yeah, they get a little, they take us through the first time we're ever given this recap. I hate recaps. When I'm watching, you know, these high grade uh, sci fi dramas, Westworlds. The Expanse, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Uh, Battlestar Galactica was the worst at showing spoilers in bullshit that you're about to sit there and watch. I skip these things out of principle every time. Uh, and it's nice when it's, you know, a structured 30 seconds worth of recap or in Battlestar Galactica, 30 seconds uh, worth of spoilers you're about to sit there through. I can't stand it because it takes all the fun out. You know that they're going to focus in on the rock-like husk of the banjo man, you know, of, of the caretaker. And it primes you to see the stuff. And I think it takes the fun away from eventually seeing that the, the big points in the episode. So once we get through the, um, the recap, it starts with Kess and uh, Tuvok, and they're going through some telepathy exercises. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that Tuvok, obviously, since he's a Vulcan, and, and canonly Vulcans are known to have, I guess you'd call them mild psychic powers via mind meld. You know, they don't typically have, like, active reading abilities. They really have to uh, very specifically use them through these techniques. Uh, so it makes sense that he would be the one that's really being Kess's tutor and all this stuff. And Kess clearly is like next level because she's able to read the thoughts of the crew. And on, on Tuvok's urging, which was a little weird, he's like, yeah, why don't you try and see if you can just like spy on someone real quick? He's trying to just go ahead and just read their thoughts. He's trying to groom the thought police is what I took away from that. Uh, it's funny. You know, we talk about them issuing out Fed Federation uh, narcotics to 
drug people up. The opening shot when they're coming in on it, it's Kess and Tubox sitting in a dark room and it's like his magic space bong sitting there letting out incense. And for all intents and purposes, it looks like the two of them just getting high in his quarters. But no, yeah, he's he's working her through kind of honing her psychic angle. And what I took from this scene was an acknowledgement of like, yeah, you know, we're real sorry we took that one Beta Z who would have been a really good thing to have as Kess's tutor through all this, who was also hot as fuck and, and killed her off. And now we're just kind of jamming uh, Tuvok into this role. How popular are Vulcans in Starfleet? You'd have to assume they're pretty sought after officers to have. But, I mean, you've got the Vulcan Science Academy out there. I don't want to say a rival institution, but, you know, if you jump back to TOS, the original series, Spock was supposed to be uh, Vulcan Science Academy, and he turned down his acceptance letter to go into Starfleet and threw some dishonor on the family, on his family, because Starfleet was viewed as a lesser institution and while you certainly have good participation in starfleet there's not really a lot of them you know take a look at next gen you don't really see vulcans that frequently uh, as crew members on the ship nor deep space nine for that matter it's really just voyager and the original series that have them you see them more in ds9 in the background a little bit they're not main cast members but uh, Cisco's old commanding officer was a Vulcan. Uh, there's a there's an episode where there's actually a rival captain of Cisco's that is a Vulcan, and his entire crew is Vulcan. I mean, they're definitely out there, and they definitely, I think, by this that point in the air, you know, the the continuity, I think Vulcans are more integrated into choosing Starfleet as a career path. But I would have to agree that they're probably more rare as an absolute value term simply because there's probably less Vulcans, one side effect of not fucking for fun all the time. Um, and two, they're, they're going to be really like locked in to whatever it is that they, they focus on as their, I want to say skill trajectory or, in or, Starfleet. Do you remember, yeah. did you watch a lot of original series? I did watch every episode, watched every episode of broadcast track. How friend. often do they, touch on these latent psychic abilities because it's something they keep coming back to in Voyager with uh, with Tuvok because again they killed off their one beta Z obviously next gen had Troy to really focus on so the majority of my Star Trek psychic experience has been through beta Zs I feel like they're really they're really trying to 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 jam him into this psychic role and I don't think it really works well it, it seems too outland it seems outlandish to me in, in general that he would have skills that would at all be applicable to something a, a prodigy like Kess would be able to capitalize on in tos spock's abilities are treated um and obviously since they're establishing the lore there and this is continuing it is treated much the same way it's all as very focused on on the ability to mind meld and that's where that is uh, obviously it becomes a huge plot point in the movies where Spock is capable of essentially transmitting his soul into McCoy. Backups, yeah. Um, so it's extensive, but it's extensive through one vector. Hold on one second before we go any further. Let, let me revise my statement before we get anybody complaining to us. Yes, I, there would also be the Vulcan as a main character in Enterprise, uh, which, again, I haven't really watched, so that's why it slipped through the crack, but that would be three of the big franchises that touched on it. 
three of the five shows had had Vulcan main characters. And I was actually about to dive into that for multiple reasons. Uh, the psychic abilities of Vulcans are a huge plot point in Enterprise. Uh, and uh, I don't want to spoil too much because I think, in my opinion, Enterprise is incredibly underappreciated uh, and is a much better show than I think anyone gave it credit for because they listened to the theme song and then turned it off. And rightfully so, because the theme song is garbage. There's a whole ongoing plot within Enterprise about Vulcans coming to terms with the ability to mind meld and to have psychic powers. That is fascinating. And by the time, you know, the continuity of the original series starts, because Enterprise happens, you know, uh, 80 years before that or something like that, you know, that that evolution of thought of Vulcans embracing that capacity has obviously happened. It makes sense to me in continuity that had not or not yet developed, which I think lends to how well they developed it later on, that Tuvok is taking a very... I want to. I don't want to say militaristic, but disciplined, uh, structured approach, disciplined approach. Yeah, uh, to trying to impart lessons into Cass on how to control and and formulate her, her use of her powers, um, and that she would be particularly good at instructing her because of his more tactical mindset. He's not looking to help her, you know, understand the metaphysics of it. He's trying to make her structurally use it in the most effective and safe way possible which is very fitting to Tuvok's personality, so little of which we have seen so far. True. And I think he, you know, along the same lines of what you're talking about, that these instructional sessions aren't about maximizing what she has, maybe as much as locking down a... Maybe he's even probing her to seeing what her extents are and if she's going to pose a real security threat to the ship. And, you know, maybe he's pushing her, hey, yeah, why don't you see if you could lock down someone's voice? Uh, they don't show any scenes like that in this episode, but I would have to think he's reporting to Janeway and being like, yes, this alien is able to isolate and, you know, pull thoughts from anybody anywhere in the ship. And maybe, you know, Shiver goes rogue. That's going to be one of the things we need to worry about. Well, as we see later on in the episode, those fears are uh, are well founded. Yeah. So Kess reads uh, Snarf Snarf's thoughts and of course, we find out that Snarf Snarf's thoughts are the, as whiny as Snarf Snarf is. He's getting a haircut and he's pissed off yeah. that they cut too much of his ear hair. So I'm perfect. It's perfect. Tuvok kind of mildly reprimands Kes because she, you know, breaks her concentration to giggle. But he's clearly pretty impressed by her capacity to, you know, read people's fucking minds on the ship. And uh, she, Kes goes to, to, to the sick bay to start her shift with the doctor. It's worth pointing out, there's no B-plot in this episode. It's all straight through on the A-plot. And uh, the doctor's kind of, the doctor hologram doesn't really give a shit about her psychic powers and just wants her to be on time for work. Um, so he's kind of giving her crap about that. But you, you see Kess start talking about like, oh yeah, I can I can do all kinds of rad mind shit now. And the doctor's like, that's, that's great. Make sure you're here at nine. Does Kess ever get bad? Because... We talked about when the we did our first episode, our perceptions, at least my perceptions of what Voyager is. And I had always perceived Kess as being something bad about the show. And ultimately, that's, you know, why, as I understood, they got rid of her and replaced her with Seven of Nine. But watching through, she is yet to really be 
anything that that you know is like a needle off the record man this is terrible man she's a mary sue man she's uh really stinking up a scene and despite some very uh naive eagerness I, she's she's never really run a scene into the ground for me and made me hate what I'm watching specifically because of her. Does that change? No. It'll be interesting to see on the rewatch here what my opinion is, but she stays consistently where she's at in terms of of the quality of her acting throughout her run on the show. And my memory was she was bad too, but I think it's just that I, I conflated the early part of Voyager generally being bad with her being on it. Not so much that in reality she was bad. In fact, I'd say she's consistently one of the best characters in every episode she appears in. I'm going to agree. When she has significant screen time. I'm going to agree. I mean, every other, a lot of the rest of the cast, yeah, has, has had like real head slap, like, God, this is terrible moments. And she's consistently delivered. So yeah, she would. Oh, oh yeah. So they're in the, uh, the med bay and he's kind of reprimanding her on something. And they start hearing a crazy noise and they stop their their conversation and track down the source of the noise. And they open up a storage locker and in there. But unfortunately, because a stupid recap has already shown us the dead remains of the original caretaker. You're primed to know what this thing is instantly instead of just being like, oh, my God, I remember this uh, this white, crusty rock as the caretaker. But. It's in this uh, locker and it's vibrating and kind of glowing and making a noise. And they hit it with a quick tricorder and say, hey, we're getting life signs. Yeah. So a Scooby squad shows up after the credits into uh, sick bay to be like, what's going on? And they they suss out after the effect happens again in front of them that it is having some sign of resonant effect on the energy that the caretaker's race gives off and therefore very quickly come to the conclusion that they are in fact in some kind of proximity of the caretaker's mate, which is something that got teased at the beginning, uh, you know, during the pilot It is something they made sure to mention during the recap. So yet again, uh, not really an aha moment for the audience. They kind of spoiled that, but you know, they, they piece those pieces together quickly and they lock the caretaker's remains into a test tube so they can use it as a compass to find uh, the caretaker's mate. Because obviously Janeway's got her, her sights set on trying to get this thing to send them back to the Alpha Quadrant. Since whatever they are has the capacity to to manipulate subspace in such a way to do that. This is a huge deal episode for anybody who is paying attention to the meta plot of the show. It's why I got as excited as I did when I read the um, the teaser for what we were going to be getting into this episode, I am amazed that this is not a uh, cliffhanger episode uh, or at the very least a season, you know, end of season episode for us. This situation represents kind of the, the promise of the sales pitch of Voyager that when they went to Paramount and they're like, here's our idea. It's going to be a lost in space scenario. We're going to have a Starfleet, you know, mixed Starfleet crew rolling around the Delta quadrant, completely cut off from all of the affairs that we are currently fleshing out through deep space nine, uh, as to, 
you know, all the core races and everything else that you know about Star Trek. And we're going to do this completely radical thing in a, in a, a sea of possibilities. And there was some pushback in the executive office. Like, well, we don't know if this concept's going to flow. And this is like their escape hatch, right? This is, Hey, if the fan base really isn't feeling this, if the sales aren't there, if the viewership isn't there, if the Delta quadrant does not work, we've got this get out of jail free card in the other caretaker, the other, do they say what the race is called? The Nacine, yeah. The Nacine, the other Nacine, this godlike creature floating around on the, the, the Delta quadrant that could, you know, wave a magic stick at Voyager and boom, all of a sudden it's back in the Alpha quadrant and we can resume a regular Star Trek format. You're talking about the opportunity to radically change the show on a level that exceeds even, you know, the impact that Tasha Yar's death had on Next Gen. So now we're playing a game with some very real stakes. You know, we're, we're talking about changing everything. And, you know, obviously we know that there's going to be another, what, six seasons, I'm sorry, uh, five seasons of them bumbling around in the Delta Quadrant. But to the people at home, uh, seeing this, you know, we're, we're talking about some real big potential here. Uh, so, yeah, when this the, the, this the situation in which this episode aired live is definitely different from the one that you watched for the first time, knowing the future and me watching it again, knowing a great deal more. Uh, but still, we knew that at the end of Eye of the Needle, they're not getting home. They didn't make the tension in that any less real when we were, I was rewatching it. So, so far, they're ratcheting this up as like this could be some serious shit that goes down. And they segue into Tuvok, ever the uh, the Boy Scout must be always prepared, um, creating a bioweapon. <laughs> so he comes to the conclusion that fashion a weapon that would successfully affect the caretaker's mate if necessary and gets Janeway's permission to basically make this thing. Now, all I remembered about this episode uh, when, bef- before watching it again was the end. and. I couldn't remember if the caretaker's mate's ultimate reaction to Voyager was negative and if it was negative because she found out that Tuvok made a, a fucking bioweapon against her or what. So I had that thought in my mind after that got introduced of like, oh, no, is this going to is this going to be another like over preparedness by Tuvok leads to terrible consequences down the road situation or what's up? With I this? was amazed at this scene that. Voyager has such a pacifistic, peaceful, oh, we don't want to, you know, present the wrong image. We don't want to hurt whatever it is that's currently, you know, think about the the last Space Baby episode we had where like females or the males were attaching themselves to the hull of Voyager and ultimately they had to like turn on their belly and like squirm away while leaking piss to, you know, <laughs> to not offend <laughs> another alien. And here you've got Voyager like, Hey, look, um, you know, uh, we're going to be encountering a new race and maybe we should take these blankets and cover them in smallpox just in case we need to fuck it up in the most duplicitous, miserable manner possible. He also pitches this to, I have this in my notes specifically, he pitches this to Janeway like, hey, we know that 
these uh, caretakers are very powerful. We need to have the upper hand. We need to have a nuclear option and we should make a, a poison gun to, to kill it right in the middle of the bridge. And Janeway looks at Chakotay, who's kind of like, what? And then she's like, yeah, good idea. Go ahead and do it. How how strong do you think the bridge gossip is on Voyager? You've got a close, you've got a small crew. You've got haves and have-nots. One of the things we'll get into later in the episode, some fucking crewman's in charge of like pouring wine. <laughs> you know, so you've got the, the God Kings who are working the bridge, who are in the loop on everything. You got Jack-offs. Star Trek Elite Forces. You remember that game? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't the Hazard Team. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember if we've actually ever talked about it. But there's like, <laughs> if we're gonna take that as canon, there is a crew member who is assigned to standing in a very little room with the window, and they are there to work the control on the uh, the landing legs for Voyager. And they hate their position, and they're just stuck in this miserable little room waiting to hit the button to bring down the landing gear. So when you've got people standing around talking like. Oh, hey, you know, we're going to encounter something that might be our easy ticket home. Let's make a way to kill it. You know that gossip's got to like spread like wildfire off the mixed crew working the bridge stations in mess hall. And and within what, the next five minutes, every single person on the ship has to be explicitly aware. I would have to think that, uh, hey, an option to get home is near and B, we're going to have the power to kill it. There's so much to unpack in what you've had to say there, Peter. First, I think the show gets so much better when Voyager gets into sh- get shit done mode, particularly like Janeway being like, yeah, yeah, fuck this. Fuck this race that put us in the Delta Quadrant. You go ahead and get your your fucking ray gun of of syphilis and AIDS ready or whatever. And we'll we'll get ready to just hose this shit down on on her if, if we need to. Second, in terms of all of the gossip. I think it's remarked on the show a couple times already that it's a small ship, period. So shit gets around, not just on the bridge, but everywhere. Uh, So I would fully expect the gossip game to be strong, uh, particularly on people's personal lives. Because that 140 people, I think, is the crew compliment that I keep remembering was was specifically mentioned. So whoever is effing who uh, is got to be primary topic. Uh, number one, but yeah, preparing bioweapons to hose down the other member of the race that could send them home just in case. I'm sure that that got around too. Think of the impact of that for a second real quick. Janeway had a chance to get the crew home. She chose to destroy, you know, the alien technology or whatever to do it. They're going to encounter this thing again that has the ability to get it home. Her first act is to be Give me a way to destroy it. Like, I think that would be very concerning if I was a crew. Like, hold on. Her first order on finding out that there's another one of these things really close by is to create a way. It, how how can she come off as anything other than someone who is actively trying to keep the ship in the Delta Quadrant at all costs? Well, I think in, in defense of Janeway in this case, I think Tuvok's dialogue in the scene indicates exactly why. He's like... Listen, last time we encountered this this thing, we had no negotiation power. Yeah, we couldn't do anything except be subject to its whim. It it we only reason we got to leave is that it died of on its own. We need to have something that we can do just in case this encounter goes bad because if it's not benevolent like the caretaker was, we could all just be dead. 
We could, it could just wave its hand and we could die. And I think that's entirely legitimate on his part. So I don't fault Janeway for coming up with it uh, or for Tuvok for suggesting it and Janeway ultimately for approving it, I should say. It, uh, I just wish that the realism that the characters demonstrate in situations like this, the sort of real politic of space, was more consistent. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I understand it's a completely, and as we'll find out later in the episode, well-justified course of action is to you know have a contingency hostile plan but to the casual observer working in the mess hall or working in the landing control arm finding out that the captain's first order of business in finding the guy who's going to get you home is to develop a way to kill it should be pretty jarring and i think should add some more fire to the or uh, you know fuel to the fire of what the fuck is a captain doing uh, i also want to give a shout out here to the top-notch special effects we're seeing in the scene as uh, the caretaker's remains, as Banjo Man's remains feel this subspace energy or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> They're basically just vibrating a table to make this rock buzzer. <laughs> it's like... It's on a string, like yeah. some, some production assistant. <laughs> some of the rafters just jiggling the table. Oh, thing. look, it's alive. <laughs> just, you know, yeah, jerking this piece of fish wire and this thing's... Yeah, it's just a vibrating table buzzing this thing like some sort of uh, mid-90s board game mauled madness style or something uh but yeah so oh, they jesus mauled madness yeah. so they load this thing up into the test tube and yeah like you said they basically turn it directly into a compass so as these waves emanate out from whatever the origin is and hit the rock they can kind of like triangulate it and uh they do they successfully find a heading and then they arrive at what looks Exactly like, of course, because they use the same special effects shot, uh, the caretaker's array. Although Tuvok notes it's only one-tenth of the size. And then Harry Kim notes there's no caretaker on there, but there are 2,000 Okampen. And immediately those Okampen start throwing torpedoes at Voyager. So whoever these guys are, they're not in the mood to talk. We get one brief shot of the of the main kind of caretaker Ocompan character on the view screen saying, go away. He cuts Jane, Janeway off like dead. Like she starts trying to roll out the, hey, you know, we come in peace or whatever. And it's we're not interested. Look at the sign. It says no soliciting. Get the fuck out of here. So as you could expect, Janeway goes and gets Kess and is like, well, if there's a bunch of Ocompan out here, which is supposed to be impossible uh let's get the one that we have out here and maybe she can affect some kind of negotiation for us it's successful she manages to talk uh this guy who we find out is named tanis uh into coming aboard and hearing voyager out about what they want and why they're there and let me point out something clever they did here unlike 37s where they create a fantastic world which the crew gets to explore, but the audience never gets anywhere near. Um, you know, Janeway's, hey, let us, let's meet, you know, let us come on the station. Let us, what they're basically saying is, let's show off a new set piece. Let's show off a bunch of Ocampa doing cool stuff. And he shuts all that down. He's like, uh, no, you're not coming here, but I will come out to you. And despite a lot of really big potential out there, we don't get to see it. The crew doesn't get to see it. And unlike the 37s, you don't have the situation at the end of the episode where you're like, that sucks. We didn't get to actually see anything cool. 
Um, he plays it real tactical. It's like, I'll come over to your ship. We'll have a conversation and that'll be that. So he gets a little uh, away team together and they meet in the conference room. He lays down some some pretty vicious information. He does. Tannis is played by Gary Graham. He's he's probably my favorite part of the episode. I, I think they knew he was strong because they have him featured in a ton of scenes from this point forward. I would say he's probably got the most dialogue and the most screen time out of anybody on the show the rest of the way out. And Gary Graham is one of those uh, guys who, who was a bridesmaid a lot when they were casting for main roles. He was actually considered for Cisco before they decided they were going to make Cisco specifically uh, a an African-American character. And then he was actually uh, in the running to be Janeway before they decided to make Janeway a female character. Uh, he lost and the minority card twice, huh? He did. He lost He lost a minority uh, uh, casting twice. Affirmative action. He, he finally did land on Enterprise, actually, in a really critical role. He plays Soval, who's the uh, the Vulcan ambassador to Earth in Enterprise. And he's like he's like a he's like a Garrick like character where he's not on the main cast, but he's recurring at enough times and enough frequency that he becomes pretty critical to the story. And uh, he's fantastic in Enterprise as well. And I was I was very pleased to see him and that he delivered a really solid performance throughout in this. Like he that's a very interesting background. I had no idea that guy had that kind of a history with Star Trek. I've got him listed in my notes as a bootleg Hugo Weaving. And I say that in the best way possible. Yeah, he's he's like the Hugo Weaving that you get that's uh from the same factory that they produce the Hugo Weavings in China, but that that they've just changed it, you know, it's like the Kirkland brand, you know, like at Co- at Costco. You know, they make mm-hmm. it in the same place and it's still really good. It's just they've changed the name and it it costs you, you know, 40% less. To him specifically, he delivers some dialogue in this that I think if you were just to read the dialogue on the page would probably look pretty stupid, but somehow the way he delivers it, it, it comes off as a good performance. I, I think that your credit that you're laying at this guy's feet is well-placed, and uh, I would agree that he is a big part of why this is ultimately a good episode for Star Trek and a great episode for Voyager. So they sit down with, what's his name, Tannen? Tannis. Tannis. Biff Tannis? Biff Tannen? Hmm. <laughs> Biff Tannis. What if they had replaced Discount Hugo Weaving with the guy from Back to the Future? Back to the Future. Oh. With, with old Biff. <laughs> Janeway! Janeway! You're flying a <laughs> ship of death! Hello! And that's what he says exactly. Is like, look, you gotta understand... We got you at an arm's length because you guys are bad news. We heard about you. And uh, the way it goes through the prison grapevine is you killed the original caretaker. You've been marauding and pillaging your way uh, over here ever since caretaker station. Uh, All of the alien species that you have met have shit talked you up and down the wall, said about how you guys are wanton murderers. And uh, just out to steal resources. So that's why we don't want to let you near the station. And Janeway miraculously has this look of, what? And Chakotay's like, none of that's true. And it's like, actually, that's partially true. Let's let's jump back to Twisted where, uh, you know, 
uh, Harry Kim delivers the the line of the show. Why would anybody want to hurt us? That's maybe because you keep going from Delta Quadrant race to Delta Quadrant race, fucking everyone's shit up. Like you've got it's organ stealing, you know, a space leprosy people trying to steal your lungs. You've got a whole bunch of Kmart Klingons who want your uh, your fucking food blenders. Uh, you've got a whole race of like decadent, uh, hyper technological knockoff relatives of Jeff Goldblum who might be going from planet to planet talking shit about how how much you suck and stole because, from them. Yeah, you stole because yeah. you fucking did. Like and and on and on and on. Like yeah, it, if I kind of liked that, he's like, yeah, your ship is garbage. You do garbage things in space, and uh, fuck you. I, I, I love. Are you familiar it. with Next Door, the Next Door app? I Next Door is how I entertain myself sometimes at work because it is amazing the things. So that tell, come tell, up the, there the, tell the audience what Next Door is if they don't know. Since we're out there to introduce people to like Whisper and <laughs> the other. <laughs> so, yeah, so Next Door is a social media uh, site that is specifically designed for you to connect to people who live in close proximity to you. Uh, on a neighborhood level so that you can talk about things that are going on in the neighborhood. So on like a cheery, happy level, it could be like, oh, hey, I'm having a yard sale or, oh, hey, you know, uh, you know, let's organize a cookout. And then, you know, more practically, it could be like, oh, hey, here's, uh, you know, some neighborhood watch stuff. And I uh, I have a recommendation for you for a contractor, someone who worked at my house. In reality, it's like there was a black guy in a white T-shirt at the end of the street and everybody needs to be like, it's so much latent racism or like, you know, big fights about like uh, Tony's building a shed in his backyard and the city ordinance says he can't have a shed. And I was told no on a shed. We need to call the police on him. It's just whining and complaining and bitching. And I have to imagine that with all the fantastic technology in the 24th century, even if the Vidians don't get along with um, everyone. What are the fucking uh, organ thieves? The the Vidians are the the organ thieves. I'm sorry, the Skevians. The Skevians of even the Skeven the Vidians don't get along because you know one's a fucking trashy asshole that tries to steal your eyeballs, and the other's a bunch of uh, you know too good for your pricks. Like there still has to be some gossip going on. And there has to be like some sort of a bulletin board or a next door and be like, boy, hey, I have a story. We encountered Voyager and they ate all of our porridge and slept in all of our beds and then flew away and left poop on the floor. Like these guys are terrible. So I don't blame Delta, Delta Quadrant next door. Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I just got this idea of like, you've got like a Vidian with his like profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, he gets a bunch of replies for a bunch of Kazon and shit. Like the Vidians, the Vidians profile picture is like you know, like on uh, dating sites, people are using like old pictures of them from like ten years ago, and they used to be in shape and had all their hair and look good, and like you know, now they're a fat balding mess. Like the Vidian, or not the yeah, the Vidian pictures was like uh, you know, back before they had a terrible plague. It's like. You know Ted doesn't have his own face. That motherfucker's out there scabbing it out of the trash. He's on his face. fifth face. He's 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 wearing Fred Durst's face now. That's what's going on with him. Honey, the Vidians are saying that these Voyagers are bad guys. Well, you know you can't trust the Vidians. They're a bunch of creepy organ thieves. Like, yeah, but you know, the Skevians are kind of backing them up. Maybe we should watch out for these Voyager guys. The uh 
the inexplicable space Indian gods, they did say actually that Voyager did take a bunch of resources off the planet. So, you know, those face tattoo guys corroborated that maybe there's where there's smoke, there's fire. They, they go through that and eventually Tannis psychically asks Cass to stay and speak to him personally. And they, they tell everyone else to leave. They empty the room and Tannis immediately gets pretty personal with Cass about what the fuck is with these people? Why are you here? And she lays it out. just like, Hey, these people saved my life at risk to themselves. They didn't have to do that. They're good. They're good people. And you know, they've treated me well all this stuff, and and um, they start to get to know each other. And clearly, Tannis is interested in Cass on a on a deeper level than just you happen to be a compan, and I'd like to know why you're here. I think Kess does a very good job in this episode of calling back to her origin story, which was a outspoken Ocampa under the caretaker's umbrella, who dared to wonder. You know, there's. Um, there's rumors that our species used to be powerful telepaths, that we've got this potential that we are not realizing. And whereas the Ocampa uh, under caretaker were content to kind of slow their role and, and limit expectations and die off in these 10-year life cycles, there was more. These guys are realizing it. And she gets very excited at the idea that, hey, oh yeah, by the way, they're there is this potential for us to follow. And whereas a lot of the early origin stories and backgrounds that we've been introduced to in these Voyager characters gets discarded through the series, this picks up and does not miss a beat. And she represents all this stuff uh, in a really top shelf format. I agree. And, and Tannis lays out as well, like critical information that, ties right into that he's 14 which is older than any ocomp and Cass has ever heard of being his dad died at 20 at, at died at 20 so they've got double lifespans his psychic powers are obviously pretty well honed uh, we're gonna see more of that later he starts to warm up to Cass, and he lets slip that uh, the female caretaker's name is Suspiria. that's why i wanted to name this episode Sustudia. i heard Suspiria. it's like Suspiria, like you know, I, uh, I liked your other suggestion better. Yeah. Genesis. That was a bad suggestion. You're bad. You're terrible. Go away. Hang it up. You're done. You're, you're done podcasting, kid. You're over. You don't want me to but, karaoke uh, uh, Genesis songs anymore. All right. Fine. No. Tannis is, is uh, going through the, the botany uh, area, the, the hydroponics bay. And he starts to make stuff grow using his powers. Um, so he's on a next level with his psychic abilities and, you know, he, uh, he starts to kind of give some critical information to Cass about what's going on. He goes back to the, the array that the Ocampan are on and has a, a little meditation moment and contacts, which we assume to be Suspiria psychically. And again, the voice here is Majel Barrett. I don't know is if it? you I noticed that. that. Yeah. It was more. It was more uh, Loxana Troyish in the voice the second time around than computer. Uh, but I love me some Loxana Troy, so uh, I, I picked up on it that it was Major Barrett again. I did not get that at all. Good, but good find. She sounds real fucking angry. Who this female care caretaker is definitely pissed off 
and wants Voyager, and it doesn't sound like she wants to give it a hug. She doesn't really care about what happens to Cass, but but she wants Voyager. What is funny is one of the th- you know one of the few gripes I have about this episode is while uh, Tannis has Cass in the Botany Bay, he's like, "This place sucks," and she's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "It's so barren and sterile." You know, it's uh, just these dead hallways and steel. And she's like, there's 150 people here. You know, it's a nice little ecosystem. And he's like, no, but, you know, just wait till you see the station. The station's so alive. The station's so good. All you ever see of the station is like this corrugated steel wall with a chain link fence in front of it and the steel table. It's like the most barren set piece possible. And when he's over there shit talking, like, how how dead the the ship is in arguably the most vibrant you know plant filled room, and though all you see of him is uh, like a janitor's closet. Uh, I got a good laugh off of that. How do you feel about these scenes where they show you information beyond what's available to the crew, and it's always like, here's a sinister moment. This guy has ill intentions. Bad things are are brewing for the or for the uh, the Voyager. I feel like they're so unnecessary. I think it kills some of the tension. I think, um, when again, I think of my favorite episode so far in the show being Eye of the Needle, where they wait until the very end to reveal critical information. It helps that episode so much to have the slow drip to the audience happen at the same time that the uh, the, the characters become aware of it. It, it excuses Tuvok and Janeway's warmongering of let's make a weapon to kill this fucking thing before we even have another conversation. Cause now you're like, Oh, it's a good thing. They're making the anti spore, the antifungal cream gun because you know, you know, ill, ill shit's going on. And I thought that, you know, nothing, his first conversation with Kess, it's got this weird, like space superiority vibe to it. And that's something that, you know, follow him through is it? Tannis is an Ocampan, superiority i mean we're already 54 minutes in so i kind of want to uh speed through some of the kess uh tannis stuff yeah he's a cult leader um, straight up he, he is he is he is definitely like i would say cult leader is the right word uh, uh ocompan supremacist that's what i was looking for uh, he, you can see where he wound up cast as soval later because soval is, is a critical character in vulcans appearing very in enterprise being very haughty and and looking down upon humans and he's kind of the fulcrum of that particularly early on in that in that show and so carries his ability to carry that into the performance of this character as well is pretty critical because that's clearly what this guy's supposed to be like they they, the next scene we get is they're doing a a dinner service out of the captain's quarters that's where we have some indentured servant ensign who's been reduced to serving you know wine at uh at this little dinner and he throws out on the table to Kess like yeah why don't you move off this ship and come back onto the station and uh Neelix who you thought we were done with his jealousy or not kind of you know does a double take and starts getting scared he's gonna lose her and we get some mild um we get some mild tension between Tannis and Neelix the potential of moving away onto the station and realizing your comp and legacy uh, versus staying on the ship and kind of, you know, doing what you've already established. No, I agree. I, I do like that Janeway was like, yeah, you know, maybe you should think about this. You might not want to come back to the Alpha Quadrant with us if that's where we'll wind up. Absolutely. 
we get a quick interlude. Tuvok's still continuing to develop his, his AIDS cannon, which now we know is completely valid, uh, which, yeah, I agree that that scene that was in the corrugated steel you know, office of doom really killed the tension for some of the episode. And I think it, it downgrades it overall. Um, cause now we know he's doing the right thing rather than something that could fuck him later. Yeah. And, uh, uh, we get a great scene though, between Kess and Tannis over trying to, to Tannis trying to get Kess to tap into deeper reserves of her psychic power. And, you know, we've made the super Saiyan joke before, but like this shit is serious now. Like she, uh, Managed to do telekinesis and then boil tea in a cup using her brain. And all of it is the product of basically uh, the the Oracle's conversation with Neo. Uh, there is no spoon. They, they go almost so far as to say, you know, there's no cup, there's no water, there's just your end goal. There is no spoon. And I wish, I almost wish that this was a two-part episode so we could flesh it out. There's a great juxtaposition. You've got the conversation, the training sessions with Tuvok where he is a very stern and cold and, you know, take things slow and, you know, be methodical. And then you've got Tannis, which is like, fuck it, go buck wild. Don't, don't think about the steps in between. Think about what you want the end result to be, be emotional, embrace this. And it's a, it's a really good black and white, portrayal of how her powers could develop and ultimately where is Kess fate's going to end up by the uh, end of this episode. Now it actually is a little bit of foreshadowing to Kess's ultimate fate too, which I won't go too deep into, but what happens to her as her character goes along and ultimately what's necessary for her to do um, hints of it are here. And uh, I think the, the scene with, with uh, Tannis is well, juxtaposed with the next scene with Tuvok, which is fucking baller, um, where she's super excited that she's able to do this stuff with Tannis. And it's like, hey, she Tuvok. wants to show it off. Yeah. She's like, hey, no, Tuvok, let me show you some shit I learned. I'm gonna show, I'm- I've got I've got the gift of infinite energy. I can boil water with just my brain. Who needs the warp core anymore? I have a uh, or I've got an ultimately easily replenishable source of boiling water. We can just go full on steamship. Well, I mean, she can manipulate it on a molecular level. I mean, yeah. that's that's disturbing. This is the most potent psychic abilities we have ever seen in Star Trek up to this point. To, you know, if I'm right here. No, you are. You're absolutely correct. And uh, in, in an awesome turn, she proves unable to fully control the boiling of the tea that she does for Tuvok. Let's let's lay this scene out because this is probably the coolest scene we've seen in Voyager yet. So she's been able to boil tea under Tannis's tutelage. She goes to show Tuvok. Tuvok's like, uh, well, you know, just take it low and slow on this. And she starts boiling the water and then realizes, oh, I can't control this. And like they've been showing you this uh, the CGI of like molecules floating around as she like uh, hyper agitates them and creates heat, which boils the water. And then she's like, oh, I, I, I can't stop this. I don't know what I'm doing. And then the molecules, which had been red before, are now green you know, jittering around, showing that they're getting hot. And uh, she's like, Tuvok, I I can't stop. I can't stop. And then they zoom away from her face and they cut to Tuvok and all is not well. Yeah, Tuvok, his blood is 
boiling. It is he is getting like basically splash damage from Cass being unable to control her powers, and it is some horror movie shit. It is. I mean, not ex- I did not expect that in that scene. I mean, he looks like he's all kinds of fucked. Um, he's got. She is microwaving him. His face, like the bone structure, is shifting. There's like a big pulsing, like fucking thing on his forehead. His eyes are bloodshot green. There's blood coming out of his mouth and nose, and it is horrifying. I, I thought for sure it was gonna be like a dream sequence because I'm like, that- Jesus Christ, he looks fucking dead as fuck right now. Like, holy shit, he's like you said, he's microwaving him, the guy, with her brain. He's totally fucked. This has got to be some kind of dream sequence. But no, they cut to sick bay. And fortunately, the doctors, you know, fucking cool. A necromancer. Cool were, 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 uh, were ready to go and just, you know, hit hit revive. And uh, even says that basically like, yeah, so your blood boiled and I had to resuscitate you. And now you're alive. Luckily, you lost your soul in the Hollow Pursuits episode uh, when Beowulf or when Grendel... <laughs> incorporated you into the holodeck grid so don't worry your soul's been gone and it's it's still gone so you don't have to get over that emotional hump but yeah you're you're on light duty this is the biggest cop out in this episode because tuvok realistically should have been down for the count from like that they hit the ball out of the park so hard on the practical effects on this blood boil that for him to be laying there like brand new and they'll be like, oh, don't worry. I've got, you know, some accelerated Vulcan healing techniques. No big deal. Uh, real missed potential. There. And I would say Agreed. that's probably my biggest complaint Agreed. about this episode. I mean, he looked so fucked up in the in the prior scene that I honest to God assumed it had to be a dream sequence because he looked dead. They looked like this is what someone looks like on Star Trek when they die. This is what he looks. This is he's all fucked. He's this is what it fucked. looks like when there's a transporter accident and and instead of cutting away to people's faces as they watch the transporter accident happen, like if you kept the camera on and watched someone molecularly shift and and cripple, this is what it is. Easily the best practical effect I've seen in any Star Trek. Yeah, makeup uh, wise, it episode. was really well put together. The whole the reveal of how they did it, like the you, lighting. Yeah. So good. He's a super bro. Tuvok is about it to Kess. Where Kess, yeah. Kess is like, I'm so sorry. And he's like, you're probably feeling remorse. Don't. It's it's fine. I'm fine. This is going to, it's, it's, it's okay. And I'm going to keep teaching you because clearly you need to be taught. Uh, I want to be there to make sure that you don't boil anyone else's blood. So let's just you chalk this up to a learning experience and uh stare steer away from like manipulating uh things on a thermal level for now <laughs> super bro about it tuvok saw firestarter in the earth archives uh he knows that he's got a real drew barrymore situation on his hand he cut <laughs> maybe he doesn't want to like upset her again because he doesn't want to get microwaved a second time maybe he's just you know this is he's going into oh, safe my mode blood. my blood is so sensitive it's so sensitive right now. I can't take another one. Uh, yeah, no, we're, everything's fine. Can you just do me a favor and not make direct eye contact with me? Because I'm feeling a little tingly here still. But yeah, he gives her a total pass on the fact that she just fucking killed him. And then uh, perhaps the best evidence you will ever see as to why you want to be friends with the Vulcans. It's they can move past even the most grievous of insults and injuries uh, with no fucks to give. So thank you, Logic, for salvaging this friendship. 
and uh, burying that hatchet before it can even uh, fly. Uh, there's another great Tannis Kess scene in the uh, in the hydroponics bay where shit gets cut, kicked up a notch. Uh, Tannis is really throwing the hard sell down onto Kess of that she needs to come with him. You know, her potential as a Ocampan and her abilities uh, can only be fully realized uh, with him. And they do this whole thing where he gets her to really like tap into the life around her is how it's phrased and how they do it is that she taps into it the way that, that, that Tannis describes and they like overdo the color saturation in the shot. So everything looks much more vibrant and kind of different than it really does in real life to give it a kind of an outer worldly look. And then ultimately she starts to draw on what Tannis is calling like the fire. It becomes a literal fire as she, burns all of the plants and absorbs their life energy into herself. I think the effects look sweet and them just playing with the color filtering is very simple, but very, very effective in kind of creating this heightened sense of perception for her. That part is, almost that, like, I agree on that. It's the fire that was a little weird, but the, the color shift was real is, was cool. It reminds me of an interview with a vampire when Louis finally gets turned and sees everything for the first time as a supernatural. And I, I thought this was a very vampiric scene overall because she does bring joy and energy to herself at the cost of material around her. Um, and this is where Tannis's cult pitch really starts getting strong, that there are there are deep costs associated to these these amazing powers she has. He is not shy to explore them. He is willing to Machiavelli, uh, you know, the ends justify the means, these these terrible sacrifices away. And, you know, there's a brighter future tomorrow. You need to be strong enough to do what is necessary to get to it. Come with us, realize your potential. Some real, you know, supremacy talk going on here. Basically, these humans are uh, are just animals compared to us. Uh, they can't comprehend what we're about. The rest of the galaxy fears us. Um, we've got a divine mandate, blah, blah, blah. So his nefarious hand really gets revealed hard in this. But again, I think he does it well. One of the lines he lays out in this is, bring the fire, which looks stupid in writing, but the actor sells it well. And again, even though he clearly identifies himself as a black hat at this point, I think he does so not in a stupid way. He maintains, I don't want to say sympathy, but plausibility and her ability to, or her choice to stay with him uh, hasn't really left the table. There, there's still an uncertainty in the air of how is this going to finally resolve here? Knowing, you know, everything we do up to this point that caretaker wants to, to destroy the ship and that this guy's got, you know, his crazy white power angle. You know, if there was any doubt before, we definitely know there's more and more sinister uh, intent behind the nature of the Ocampan powers, because it's obviously very destructive and almost vampiric. But nevertheless, Tannis reveals that, you know, Sipsiria, the name of the uh, other uh, caretaker, takes talented Ocampa to like subspace realms. And, uh, you know, there's that subspace again. Is there anything yeah. subspace can't do, Joe? Well, it is, you know, basically magic territory. 
I'm, I was exactly in my mouth. In Star Trek, the force is called subspace. And I think that's, that's really, true. That's, that's the TLDR of subspace. It is the force. I mean, it, it's better than, it's more sciencey than saying, you know, transdimensional or, you know, subdimensional communication. It's, yeah. it's instead subspace communication. You know, it's that space between spaces. It's the phrase from science fiction. Kess looks high on mind heroin. She's she's looking like she's tripping the light fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, you know, the caretaker uh, subsidiary shows up and we get we get the ship trying to figure out where she is. Yeah, so um, they fly out to a remote region of space. Tana sends out a, hey, we're here and now she'll be here within 45 hours we just got to sit and wait and uh she yeah, does so- and and as they're trying to figure out where she is you know you got the the engineering crew who are are it's this really like almost like comical scene where there's this bad cgi plant looking thing in the background like forming up behind them about to stole about to steal on them you know you know, and I actually missed that happens. scene. I was looking away. I, I, I completely miss it. I have to go back and rewatch it. Uh, my, my wife noticed it, and then I had to rewatch it. Uh, Stevie's like, did you see that? I'm like, no, I didn't. I'm, go back, and like, there it is. Yeah, it's like you the, the creeping doom is sneaking up behind them. You don't see what happens, obviously. Kess kind of starts to figure out in her conversations with Tanis it's a bad shit's about to go down because she starts to sense uh, Sipsperia and senses that um, – She's pissed. And uh, Janeway goes to down to engineering after determining that she's down there after the uh, security team goes down to find the missing engineers. And what happens after that is a, I would say, very well, well put together ending. Because Tupac's like, I think our friend arrived and everything. <clears throat> the engineer saw something. They went to go check it out off screen. Tuvok's like, I think our person is here. You don't hear back from him again. Communication systems are down because it's Voyager. And if there's one thing about Voyager, it's the communication systems are always down. They just need to get walkie-talkies, I think, at this point. But, uh, yeah, so Janeway goes down, and what does she see? But uh, I wonder if, like, she kind of had a pause in her step and thought, like, oh, God, the hollow novel's back. Because you got a little blonde girl sitting there in a very pretty pink dress, uh, sitting on the floor, weeping, holding the rock of what used to be her friend, the caretaker, Banjo Man. She's basically holding a dead body, clutching it with hair in her face. Next, this the scene is, again, like some horror movie shit. Because the Suspiria accuses Janeway of having killed the caretaker. Yeah, she starts off goes, soft and like, oh, you know, like things might be neutral. Janeway might have actually a chance to like diplomacy her way through this. And, and then that switch flips into the horror mode. And I think that's exactly uh, th- the best way to describe it. Is her voice at this point Majel Barrett's? When it's the little girl, no. And then when it shifts into the adult voice, it's Majel Barrett's. Mm. And, uh, you know, Janeway takes a step back when that voice comes out. Accuses and her of being a murderer. And suddenly there's some blood that drips down on her shoulder. And she looks up. And sees Bolana and Tuvok like suspended in air and they're bleeding out of their fucking nose and mouths. So this is like 
Tuvok has had some real shit days with internal bleeding and trauma because now he's all fucked up on, you know, getting his ass handed to him through psychic powers pinned up against the ceiling. And clearly this female caretaker, uh, Candid is capable of all manner of violence and she is not happy. And um, people stuck to the ceiling. I think is one of the best horror tricks out there. Cause again, yeah, you get that blood dripping and then you look up and then the shock realization Voyager softballed it real hard here for some nineties family TV. Like this, this is what I don't understand when she looks up and it's, you know, you got two bridge crew, you got Balana, you got Tuvok. I think if they had made them like rando disposable red shirts, they could, instead of like just kind of floating midair, they could have had them like, stuck to the ceiling legs and arms bent in unnatural ways heads twisted around like two dead people glued to the ceiling dripping blood um and i i would say that you know it's out of line for star trek except for that scene with uh tuvok being microwaved was so graphic and so intense that i think if there was a time to break out some crew deaths because we haven't really had real crew deaths up to this point um i think this would have been the perfect place to have it and take it from a pg horror moment to like a full-on i mean not a literal rated r but like murder death kills impaled to the ceiling a real shocking moment of realization that yeah this caretaker is in full-blown murder mode uh space monster i'm shocked and appalled by you peter we haven't had a real crew death yet my god man Fred Durst gave his life for this show. God damn it. Yeah. How dare you? How dare you forget? How do you besmirch the name of the Durst? That man gave his body, his mind, and most importantly, his beautiful face. Yes, yes. yes. For the nookie. He gave it all for the nookie. How? But Durst gave it all for the nookie. He gave it all. Durst was also a fleshed out character. Quaz. I mean, he had two times on the screen. I, I'm, I'm talking throwaway red shirt deaths we haven't had any and this would have been i think the right time and put the real gravity into the situation so uh unfortunately okay so she backs away she sees crew members like eerily suspended in space not like full-blown deformed pinned to the ceiling leaking gore but as far as janeway knows at this point these dudes are dead she knows it's a (laughs) it's, it's a do or die moment and uh fortunately for her at this moment uh Cass is on to the game tanis is getting just a little bit too rapey yeah he's like full on behind like slow dance bump and grind up on Cass's ass literally he's full on grope it's where the thumbnail for the uh netflix episode comes from like he's full on like dry humping her unfortunately for the caretaker what was her name the scene no uh suspiria studio i'm not giving up on this phil collins thing man studio uh unfortunately i've given up on you as a man Unfortunately for Sestudio, she chose to make her uh, her introduction to the ship in the room where the spore rifle is but 10 feet away. She could have done this anywhere else and like she would have gotten away with it. But no, but no, she decided to spring her trap literally right next to the AIDS cannon. The only thing that could possibly bring her low. And, and Jane, to Janeway's credit, like after Cass goes Super Saiyan and gives fucking Tannis a goddamn aneurysm, she flips the script on Suspiria and knocks knocks her out of her concentration. So Janeway's able to get get free. 
quick uh, side note, all these Ocampa are basically like uh, the Protoss and in, in Starcraft, the, what was it called the Teldarine? They have a shared consciousness, kind of like I yeah. Don't know, they've actually, got... fuck! I didn't even think of that. Yeah, they are. They've all got those nerve things that the the the, the, the they're basically their dreadlocks, dreadlocks. For sure. So when you become an Ocampa under Studio, you kind of have a cultist, you know, drink the Kool Aid moment where you bond with her, and in the in the moment, join the shared consciousness. So when Tannis is like dry humping Kess and she's like, no, I'm not about that. She pulls a trick out of, uh, you know, the, whatever the last episode was where she's like off of me onto you. I'm going to, you know, reflexively attack you back with my telepathy stun locks him. And then to studio again, since she's on the same shared consciousness, it breaks her game too. And that's what gives uh Janeway the chance to roll over and grab what is probably the worst star Trek prop we've seen in a long time. This fucking thing looks like a fire hose nozzle, essentially. She cranks it up. There's a cheapo electricity effect that that hits a uh, little girl to studio, knocks her to the ground, and uh, lickety split, just like the last telepathic attacker, uh, they erect a force field around her. And now she is at, somehow, the mercy of Voyager, which I can gloss over. Two things. One, I do like that Janeway had zero hesitation once she got free to lock and load the AIDS cannon and let mm-hmm. her have it. Like, there's like no further negotiation. She got that shit in her hands. She's like, fuck you. Boom. She didn't know it was going to kill her or not. She's just like, nope, not fucking doing this. You're going down and hits her with it. And then Tuvok comes off the, the ceiling. I mean, the distance that that Tuvok and Bolana fall would be That's a good- fatal. That's a fatal drop. <laughs> like, no, it's not. Because remember, the first good air launch effect was a guy falling off that bridge at roughly the same height. This is a safe Starfleet drop distance. That's why there's not a better railing on that walkway up there. He, you know, Tuvok, you know, in the very good, ter- the no good, terrible, very bad day, he, he gets right up and is like, all right, we're going to put a force field up and we're good. Like, no hesitation. What point does it turn into the worm? Uh, after Janeway's like, all right. I got my AIDS cannon. I'm going to let you go. And she's like, you're letting me go after I was like going to psychically mind rape all of you into like a million shards because you killed my, my, my bay. And she's like, yeah, cause we didn't kill him and we're good people. So you can go. So why don't you go ahead and leave? And that's when she turns. This is my second moment of disappointment. Because you have this super powerful thing and at least present your case better be like, let's let cooler minds prevail. You're behind a force field. We got the upper hand. Let's really flesh this thing out and maybe present the option that you just zonk us out back into the elbow quadrant, which I guess is kind of a bad move because you don't know if she just might go crazy again and abuse that moment of uh, letting her have her way. But they rush through it way too fast for my taste i think they wanted to preserve at the time they wanted to preserve the idea of encountering this being again so they wanted to leave it ambiguous Mm. um spoiler alert true this isn't they never run into her again they much to the absolute shock of every viewer of voyager who always anticipated that there would be another caretaker episode a redemption moment you know like 
wow, they never touch any, do they touch any more, well, I don't want to get into the Ocampa stuff, but yeah, so she's like, hey, you know, we're not bad people after all, I'm not going to bother trying to like diplomacy you any further on this, and we're in a show of good faith, just going to drop the fucking force field, Uh, she sheds this little girl form, turns into like what looks like a big, nasty jellyfish millipede, it's pretty gross, it's pretty scary, I guess, you know, and uh, I guess, you know, you got in a little view of it earlier on. But this thing is a full-blown space monster, despite whatever uh, Caretaker Part 2 of may have led you to believe. She worms out. Tannis is like, uh, please take me with you, cult leader. Take me back to the mothership. She is a benevolent god, and she does not leave her minion behind us, you know, be exposed to the death ship any longer. He drifts off into subspace, and uh, their Voyager is left standing there in space, holding its dick in its hand with nothing to show for the efforts. Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically... It bookends... The, the episode bookends nicely with another scene between Tuvok and Kess, where Kess explains that her her Super Saiyan level 2 powers have faded, Tannis leaving, and that it was fueled in some part by Tannis's presence. It lends to your Protoss analogy quite well. And, uh... Yeah. You know, they, They've got banding. And they... Yeah. <laughs> Man, we did a magic reference last episode. We are a cornucopia of nerd here at Viger, please, if you haven't noticed. We've Mass Effect references, Magic the Gathering references, uh, Starcraft, Starcraft, you name it. You name it, we find it. And we'll sprinkle in a little uh, um, uh, Fred Durst, you know, pouring one out. Well, I will, where Peter will dishonor his memory uh, in forgetting what he gave for the nookie. Uh, I will not. Fred Durst was not a red shirt. No, he was a gold shirt. He was a gold shirt, and he was the best of us. In going through this episode, uh, I have realized that I liked it more than I initially thought, and that there are depths that... I want to say this. I don't... This was a great episode of Star Trek. It might not have been perfect TV. Like, you know, if we were to take it to today's standards of, like, art direction and, and some of the other stuff, there's some great special effects. Some things come off as a little shallow, like maybe Tannis is more basic cult leadery and a little bit more uh, hand wringing bad guy than than we we pinned him on. This, I think, while Eye of the Needle was just great all around, I think this might actually be a better episode, especially in a Star Trek capacity, because it draws on its own lore and its own history, and and touches on precedence and meta plot in Voyager in ways that we have never seen this this uh, uh, series accomplish yet. It is the full package. It's everything I think you could want out of a Star Trek episode. It's got the connections to the past and, and laying groundwork potential for the future. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think this is really an A-plus, probably best of series episode for me. I would say that you summed it up well earlier by saying it is a good episode of Star Trek. It is a great episode of Voyager. I would put it as my third favorite. I would put it firmly behind Eye of the Needle and Projections. But I would definitely make it the solid third choice of what we've seen so far. Um, It has a few pitfalls that we have mentioned that sort of hurt it narratively. But overall, um, the structure is solid, Um, you know, Gary Graham as the guest actor playing Tannis is great in every scene he's in and how he delivers uh, his dialogue. 
Um, the continuity is great. Um, it is delivering on the promise of Voyager in much the same way that Ivan Evil did. And I think it's notable that both the, the screenwriter of this episode was a first time screenwriter who was just some guy who worked in PR for Paramount and just wrote a script. And the director was a first time for Voyager director who also uh, was a huge uh, figure in TNG as a director and directed, for example, Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and 2. So these are people who had not worked on Voyager before and wrote a script and directed an episode at, that I think well surpasses. Knocked it out of the fucking park. Absolutely. Knocked it out of the park. Hands down. And uh, and delivered the kind of episode that could have made Voyager a great show if there had been more of it. And uh, despite some weaknesses, I would definitely still consider it third best so far. What I think puts it to the, my favorite episode so far is that it had the gravity and it had the potential to enact real change in the episode. And that anytime, again, even going and watching this, knowing damn well what happens, I find myself wondering, geez, could something really big go down here? That counts for a lot and that they carry that suspense and they handle it well. How this was not the the season two uh, uh, season finale is beyond me. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they chose to go with as their bookend for season two. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and on a limb here and say it's probably not even half as good as what we just saw here. But I think this might have been a good story to, to tell later on in the series because, again, the potential there. But uh, it seemed like a, they tapped out pretty early. If this was their get out of jail card, and like you said, they they leave things open. They could have very easily went back and found her again and, and got knocked in. But for our first encounter, for the first time, they really touched this promise from the initial Voyager sales pitch to Paramount. They handled it great. And uh, and this is this is what I want to see. This is what I want to see out of Voyager. This, this touched all the bases. And this was a great what if. What if you and I didn't have to sit here and and script uh, you know punch up doctor up a script to make it great this is a best case scenario i think completely agreed it's a shame they don't go back to doing this again it's very strange we, I, as someone who watched the show as it was airing we always expected there to be another one never was we never hear about the female caretaker ever again so uh, on that note peter go ahead and uh, let us know what are we watching next time all right, season two, episode 11, Maneuvers. After the Kazon steals some Federation technology, Chakotay goes after them on his own and is captured. Didn't, wow, torn emotions on this one. Didn't we already tell the story? And B, isn't this the story that needs to be told? <laughs> Remember here. Yeah, well put. Well put. Yeah, and this is going to have like 100% less of... Uh, Ensign Nog and his amazingly toned arms. So we'll see where this goes, but I think we all know who's going to be a critical player if it's going to involve Chakotay and the Kazon. We've talked several times now about the Federation sprinkling technology and the Kazon wanting to get their hands on it. So uh, I'm very afraid because this looks to me like two great episodes back to back, which we know cannot be the case in Star Trek Voyager. Um, I'm going to not ask you about what you remember out of this because I want to go in cold. Threshold is still coming, my friend. So there will be a karmic payback. Of course. It's a, uh, that's, that's how these things work. Uh, 
do you want to make a prediction on who's going to be the blundering element or the worst part of this uh, maneuvers coming up? Yeah, sure. Chicote. <laughs> that was easy. Chicote such a bittersweet player at this point, man, because like, I just want to dump and hate on him nonstop, but Beltrain's given us a taste of the Chicote that could be the sassy. Yeah. The kind of shitty, the shitty asshole. Yeah. He could be like a, like, like the sassy dude. If only he was the scumbag terrorist, he should be. Uh, all right, this episode I want to touch on real quick. We voted that the worst part of the episode was going to be Janeway and Kess. I think we were both wrong. We were definitely both wrong. I would say that there was no bad part of this episode that requires a call out, except maybe Neelix just by his sheer existence in the episode. But uh, his existence in the episode wasn't odious. So... Yeah, he was also a good like grounding factor. Like, hey, before you go off and realize this wonderful, you know, grass is greener on the other side of Ocampa life, we're here and we love you. So he was a good grounding element. I want to give you the the rule of acquisition here that uh, I think is going to best apply. Given that this was a get out of jail, basically, as they put it in uh, Memory Alpha, the, the one-armed man, you know, like uh, the fugitive, there's a all clear get out of jail element out there in the Delta Quadrant waiting for you if you need to tap out. But rule of acquisition, uh, number one, once you have their money, never give it back. You got us locked in the Delta Quadrant, Voyager. They're going to keep you there. We're going to ride God it. We're going to ride this train to its fruition. And we do. Yeah. All right, Peter. It's been a pleasure as always, my friend. And to our viewers, We'll see you next week. This has been Viger Please, a able voyage with the Delta Quadrant. You can always email us at VigerPlease at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, comment, join our Viger Please trauma support group. And uh, as a as a note, because we haven't said it in a while, this lovely theme music that you're probably hearing right now and heard at the beginning, uh, that's uh, from Ian and Sarah, two of our great fans who, uh, at our request, recorded horrible recorder versions of Voyager's theme. Until next time. Peace. I'm going to get drunk. I'm already there. <laughs>